The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Uh, if you've got your copies of God's Word, would you turn with me, please? Uh, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7? We're going to look at about three passages tonight as we bring our study of the theology of singleness to a focus and a conclusion. Um, and if you'll turn with me now to those two passages, uh, 1 Corinthians 7 and 1 Corinthians 9, just have them there available to you and uh, um, so that we can take a look at them. There is moments in your life where God providentially brings people into your life that, that really kind of cement what you think you know from Scripture, what you do know from Scripture, what you need to know from Scripture. And that happened to me it must have been now 30-plus years ago. Uh, let me share with you the event. Uh, I actually had preached on this matter of singleness um, about 15 years earlier, right at the beginning of my ministry, because in the providence of God, I was pastoring a congregation that was drawing from about five nearby universities and colleges. And so it was something that they uh, asked that I address, and so I did. And, um, and much of what I studied has remained with me to this point. Uh, and, and then I'd had a couple of other times of preaching about this, are doing conferences for singles uh, and uh, our colleges in which this subject matter was asked to be dealt with. So I'd been trafficking in the biblical theology of singleness um, in, on a couple of occasions. But I remember what I'm about to share with you, if I can anticipate some of the things I'm going to share about the gospel stewardship of singleness uh, as a believer. I can remember how uh, in those uh, days I was invited up to uh, preach in Westchester, uh, New York. Um, and that was interesting that I would get invited there because I knew very little about New York. But my roommate in college, my sophomore year in college, was actually from Westchester. So I was looking forward to being there. And, and I went there and passed and uh, spoke at the First Presbyterian Church. The pastor said, there's a lady that has asked to take us out. Uh, she is this, this wonderful lady, and I can't wait for you to meet her. And I said, okay, I'm looking forward to it. So we did. We went out to lunch that day. And we went to this grand hotel, really wonderful uh, facility, one of those older hotels that was made to feel opulent as well as uh, just draw you into its environment. And uh, so we were there. And kind of the giveaway for me uh, was when we walked in, there was already a table set for us. Uh, and uh, and the um, the waiter took her over there as if he knew her, but he was obviously very respectful of her. Now she was probably 25 uh, years older than me at the time, and um, but uh, I just remember us sitting there. 
she was um, an attractive lady. She was witty. Uh, she was um, obviously a woman of means. Uh, and uh, her and what a conversationalist. Uh, in fact, she reminds me of almost all the women at Briarwood Presbyterian Church, to be honest with you. And uh, But I remember talking with her, and then I did something that was utterly stupid, which I've been known to do from time to time. I just went out on really, really thin ice. I shouldn't have done it, but I did it because I was just so intrigued. I said to the pastor, I'm going to ask something that I may need you to get me back alive uh, to the place where I'm standing after I ask this. I said, ma'am, um, I have just really enjoyed this time. I am really looking forward to perhaps you coming down. I was in Charlotte at the time. I said, coming down to Charlotte, North Carolina, I would love for my wife and my two daughters to meet you and everything. But I would want to ask you something. Do you have family? She says, oh, no, no, I, um, I'm not married. And I, nor have I ever been married. And I, that's when I just, well, I was out on thin enough ice anyway. I'll just go further. And I said, ma'am, I am astonished that you are not married. Um, I don't know why. It's the same thing I feel whenever I look honestly at these wonderful young ladies that populate this congregation. I'm wondering how in the world they have not been scooped up and, uh, and, and pursued as if, um, as if there is a, 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 dare I use the parable, a, a, um, a human, a costly pearl that's there. I know when I met Cindy, that's what I did. And, um, and, and no was not the answer I was looking for. And I said, ma'am, I just, I'm amazed um, that you're single. And I said, did you feel called to be single? She said, oh, no. Remember, she said, oh, no, Sonny. And uh, <laughs> I said, yes, ma'am. Uh, she said, no, not at all. And I said, well, uh, I'm, so I won't ask any more, but I was just, uh, and she said, oh, I'll be glad to tell you. She said, I have uh, wanted to be married my whole life. I haven't been called to be single in terms of a gift or a calling. It's just what God has given to me. And um, I, she, said, um, she said, as far as having opportunities to be married, she said, well, she said, I had a lot of opportunities to be married. Uh, there were a number of them. Uh, but they were either not believers uh, are they were believers, but they were not where I knew they needed to be if we were to be married. And uh, and then she said, um, she said, and you know my my mama before she went to be with the Lord, as we would talk about this, told me something I've never forgotten. Honey, it's a lot better to want to be it's a lot better to be single and want to be married than to be married and want to be single. And so I'm going to wait. For that one the Lord has granted to me, until then, he'll be enough. And that was such an astonishing moment to me. I was, uh, everything that I've tried to study and to say in an appropriate way uh, and always feel inadequate, uh, she just kind of wrapped it right up and handed it right to me. It was just really a, a marvelous moment. But I'd like to kind of take that moment that I think is so intensely and um, attractively biblical, what she said to me that day, 
and try to give you this theological framework for it. And I'll just traffic back to this morning that whenever you work your way through a theological doctrine, remember what I shared this morning, the four great themes of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And here, and whenever you begin to work through it, when we go to marriage after, uh, when we uh, come back to this study uh, after this week, uh, when we go to marriage, we'll do the same thing we've done with singleness. What does the Bible say about it in terms of creation? And then what has the fall done to it? And what does the fall, the impact of the fall upon what we're studying? And then what is the impact and ongoing impact of the gospel, redemption? And then the anticipation of eternity and the consummation. So if I can just briefly uh, review for you, just to uh, articulate it, so that you've got it in front of you. <clears throat> this is our fourth study on this theology of singleness. <clears throat> and we've covered creation. What does the Bible say about singleness and creation? And I summed it up in three statements for you. The first one is this. In the creation account, perpetual or extended singleness is absent. It's not there. What you do have in the creation account is temporary or preparatory singleness. That is what is present. Adam was single for a time, temporarily, and Eve, after she was created for some amount of time, was single before the Lord put them into the marital state. Thirdly, it would therefore be reasonable to assume that without the fall and the divine judgment, as well as the presence of sin, today's perpetual, or one other time, um, Marie reminded me, maybe this might be a better term, um, the term I used in a previous study on this, which was just one sermon, was uh, um, extended singleness. Uh, the point of perpetual is not eternal. That's not a word of eternal. That's just a word of continued. It's not a, it's not seemingly a temporary state, but a continued state. But perhaps a better one would be a continued state of singleness or an extended state of sing singleness. That that state of uh, that particular experience or status of singleness would um, would have um, would not have been present at all. That is, it would have continued to be absent, and and only temporary or preparatory singleness would have continued to be present if the fall had not occurred. Now remember what we noticed, that the fall because of sin brought a lot of reasons why extended singleness. Number one is the uneven birth rate and then the uneven mortality rate. As men, because of things like war and because of the mortality uh, uh, table and other things, die faster. Uh, and then you have sin impacting, a, um, uh, creating singleness because of the idolatry of marriage, sinful idolatry of marriage, or sinful, sinful acts in life that makes one not uh, able to pursue marriage or be pursued. We we laid out a number of those impact those those impacts of the fall that would have brought forth this um, this continued or extended 
extended singleness in life. And so that means that comes to the fall. And when you have the fall into sin and the curse of sin with the consequences of sin, all of those things that have produced not only the reality of the creation reality of temporary singleness or preparatory singleness, but now extended singleness. While it would be careless to declare axiomatically that without the fall and the consequences of sin, perpetual or extended singleness would be absent, it can be said that the fall has clearly produced functional causes, as I've just enumerated some, resulting in extended or perpetual singleness, and has exacerbated its uh, existence. But cannot redemption deal with this? Cannot the gospel deal with this? Is God not sovereign? God never says, again, that all things are good. And I, I personally do not believe that extended singleness would be labeled a good thing any more than, um, than someone born with a birth defect because of sin's curse in society. Or because of poverty, because of sin's curse in society. Or because of violence in this world, because of sin's curse in society. But God is sovereign over all of these things. And God in his sovereignty can take these things and by his powerful hand cause them to have a good consequence in the lives of his people. If those things in a broken world come within the orbit of the stewardship of our life. You know, one of the great preachers that I've enjoyed studying in life is, um, is Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, who was the a predecessor of one of my mentors, um, Dr. James Boyce. And um, and I appreciate, I even after I got to know Dr. Boyce, I got to know about Dr. Barnhouse even more. And uh, But one of the things that I learned that uh, Jim shared about uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse is he and another excellent preacher from his era, his name was, um, his name was Ironsides, uh, Harry Ironsides. And they, both of them were great expositors of the Word of God. Well, they went through a, a year or maybe extended into two years where they would do every month they would go and do a short conference somewhere where Dr. Ironsides would preach and then Dr. Barnhouse would preach. And they did that uh, each and every. They would do that on a Saturday and then stay over to pre- one of them would stay to preach on Sunday. But both of them would preach that Saturday night. Now, when you're doing these conferences and you're going to different places, you don't come up with a different sermon. Since you've got a different audience, you get your good one and you go with it. Well, but imagine being Dr. Ironsides and listening to every sermon that Dr. Uh, that Dr. Barn that every that, listening to that sermon from Dr. Barnhouse time and time again, and so they would. Um, and so uh, Dr. Ironsides was a man with some wit about him, and so once one Saturday he said, he said, Donald, why don't I go first? And um, and Dr. Barnhouse said, oh, yes, well, let's let's change it up. You go first. So Dr. Barnhouse went first and he preached Dr. I mean, Dr. Ironsides went first and he preached Dr. Barnhouse's sermon before he could stand up there. And when he sat down, he said, I hope that doesn't discomfort you. 
But I actually think I preached it better than you did, and I've been wanting to do it ever since we've started. And Dr. Barnhouse looked at him and said, Harry, I do think you did preach it better than me. And I think these people think you preached it better than me because I was here last month and preached it last month when I was here. And so he got the last laugh. But in the midst of one of those events, there was a young youth pastor in one of the churches that they were ministering to. And the the youth pastor was just drawing upon both of them. He particularly was drawn close to Dr. Barnhouse. And one of the things that they were kidding with him was they, he and his wife were expecting a child. And as they were expecting that child, um, they would just poke fun at him just a little bit about becoming a father. And then um, on the night um, of, the, of the sermon, after they had spent some time in the, when they were preaching, The youth pastor came into the service late. He sat on the back row, and he clearly was distraught, weeping the entire time. And Dr. Barnhouse went back to speak with him. And he said, oh, Dr. Barnhouse, my wife went in to deliver this afternoon. And our child was born with a Down syndrome. And I just don't know what we are going to do. And he began to weep. And Dr. Barnhouse put his arm around him and he said, Oh, my son, I want you to know this church will be with you and I'll be praying for you. But I would ask you to consider something. Our God must be doing a great work in your life and in your wife's life that he would entrust to you the stewardship of one that he has designed especially for your family. And then he took him to the Pentateuch. When Moses was called, when Moses was called to speak to Pharaoh and he said, how can I do this? How can I speak to Pharaoh? I am slow to speak. I'm a stutterer, as it was, as it were. I don't have the facilities to speak eloquently. And the Lord said, I'll be with you. And then he said to him, Did I not make the dumb that cannot hear and those that cannot speak? Have I not made them, and have I not made you? I will be with you. Our God has specially designed this child for purposes you and I have no concept yet. And he has designed you and your wife to steward this that the world calls imperfect. But God is going to work together for his good and his glory. The man immediately stood up. He went home. He called his wife. Now, this is years ago, folks. There's things called a telephone and a dial and things like that. 
And you would always, when you called a place, would get a switchboard. And he asked for his wife's hospital room. And he said, honey, I'll be there in a minute, but I wanted to call you. We've just had prayer. What a glorious privilege our God has entrusted to us, this child, for his glory. I'm coming. And we are going to anticipate his glorious work that he has given us the privilege to engage. He saw it as a stewardship. What he didn't know is a nurse, I mean a woman who was employed by the hospital, who was the operator of the switchboard, who had rejected Christianity and had just spoken of Christianity being a religion that is nothing more than a crutch. And when she heard the theology of the providence of God and the stewardship of a life that was not perfect by the world's standards in terms of the fall and sin, but one that would be embraced redemptively for the glory of God and by the grace of God. She gave her life to Christ, and she came to Christ. There are things in life that the fall has brought, but God is sovereign, and he is at work through redemption. And that's why we started last week and walked through some of those. I'm going to ask you to go with me to these passages of Scripture, and then we will finish up with this tonight. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And slip down with me to, and I just want to make some comments on the verses, and then we'll wrap it up with some statements. But first of all, here's the first comment I would give to you. He says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7 and uh, verse 6, Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. That means he was single. He was in a perpetual or a extended state of singleness. We don't know whether he was widowed or whether he had never been married, but he clearly is single, and that's what the context is speaking of. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, there is so much that is packed into that. He speaks of in this present distress, in this present situation, and what is taking place, it actually has advantages if you're single. And he says that I would that you were as I am. But I say this as concession. As a consulting statement, not as a command. Now, why would he say not as a command? For two reasons. Number one, he, this is the same Paul who will later write in 1 Timothy that those who forbid marriage in the name of spirituality are not teaching biblical truth. It's the, he calls it the doctrine of demons. Those who would say, if you really want to be spiritual, then remain single. For some of us who have not the gift of celibacy, have not the gift of singleness, for us 
for us to embrace and pursue singleness and vow to celibacy would be unbiblical and a doctrine born from the demonic world. Now, folks, I speak with this with some amount of experience, having grown up in a church that was utterly committed to missions and that kept telling young people, if you're many times preachers and missionaries would come and say, if you really want to serve Christ, then go be single and give up your marriage, sacrifice marriage. But they were not gifted. That means that they went out to serve the Lord. They put themselves in heaven harrowing positions because they actually needed a husband or a wife. Now, could the Lord bless them if they had been in an extended single under his sovereign hand? Yes, but they went to do something. And this is the second principle. They sought singleness when they weren't gifted for singleness. Now, there's where the dynamic is. If I'm in the state of singleness, I am to embrace it with contentment in Christ as a stewardship that God has assigned to me, with confidence, not that everything is good, but that all things are going to work together for good. God is using this. But I am not to embrace it as a calling of giftedness if I'm not gifted. Again, celibacy, our confession is clear about this. Celibacy is not a vow to take. It is a gift to use. Well, pastor, what if I find myself in extended singleness? Then you begin under the sovereignty of God to embrace the stewardship of it without embracing it as the status of eternity necessarily. You leave it in the Lord's hands. And that's what he is telling them at this point in time. Slip over with me to 1 Corinthians 9. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you'll uh, go down to verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Uh, People were examining him about why he didn't have certain things. And he said, well, it's because I I have the liberty to give them up for Christ. And this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? In other words, Paul just gave you an insight. All of those disciples, many of, many of them were married. Peter was married. And his wife obviously accompanied him on many of his trips. And Paul, who was single had embraced the stewardship of it and determined to use the advantages of it in his ministry without laying the burden of it upon others if they're going to do ministry if they weren't gifted for singleness. That's why he says that we are to do what we do according to the gifts that have been given to us. And if we haven't been gifted with it, when we marry, we are not in sin. Because it is better to marry than to burn with passions if you don't have the gift of celibacy. So let me pull together a couple of things. Here's the first thing under redemption is that redemptive, there are redemptive advantages in singleness. There are redemptive advantages in singleness. 
Number one, when you're single in a state of singleness, you're not always planning for the spiritual maturity of your spouse and your children. And you can focus on your own spiritual maturity to bring testimony and blessing into the church and into the world. When you're, when you're in a state of a stewardship of extended singleness, then you are free from many of the concerns of this age. Many of the concerns of this age you don't have to worry about. You don't have to engage in. Um, for instance, one of the responsibilities of a parent is to pass property on to children. That's one of the responsibilities the Bible gives to us, is to pass on to our children property. Well, if I'm in a state of singleness, I, I'm not going to have children to pass on. So I am, there is another standard of life that I can adopt that, and whereby I have more resources available for ministry and for the things that the Lord is doing and gives me the opportunity to do. Thirdly, I have more time and opportunities, not only for spiritual growth, but for spiritual ministries. There are times when I might have a night off that I could have gone to do something in ministry, but knowing that my children were there and at their age, it was I needed to be home and I needed to be with Cindy. So those decisions have to be made. But in a stewardship of singleness, I can I can take hold of those moments redemptively unto advantages. I can make ministerial decisions and in life and ministry that I wouldn't normally be able to make. For instance, extended time away. I, I can't take extended time away from my family, but if I don't have a family and I am in a state of singleness and stewardship of that, then I've got some time where I could do some extended ministerial um, uh, activity. Or there could be uh, and one other uh, point uh, that I would make with this is there are the absence of, of, of certain obligations in the stewardship of life. Remember when we talked about stewardship in general, we've got time, we've got talents and we've got treasure. Well, whenever you are in a stewardship position, you have to think according to priorities. Well, my priorities of stewardship under Christ is first my marriage, then my family, then my extended family, and then my church family, and then into, into the world. Well, if I am in an extended state of singleness, then now I can, I, instead of those priorities being at the top, I can now move to the other priorities and I have more of my resources available for that per, for those purposes of ministry. But in redemption, there is not only advantages that we can embrace in the stewardship of singleness, but there are also disadvantages that we must avoid. There are redemptive, in redemption, there are disadvantages that we need to be made aware of. First of all, is whenever we are in a point of singleness, there is one of the means of grace. This is where I, this is something I mentioned. Um, I wanted to get in front of everyone last week because this is one that's really been on my heart. God's given means of grace for us to grow. And one of those means of grace is fellowship. And I believe that the closer the relationship is in fellowship, the more potential there is 
for growth in your life as a Christian. Now, there's also the potential for decline. But, there's, but there is a potential for growth the closer the relationship. Have you ever noticed you've got friends? I am sure that there was a dynamic between Jesus and the 70. But note what was taking place in the relationship between Jesus and the 12. And then Jesus and the three. And is there a closer relationship of intimacy and awareness and knowledge than a marital relationship? You know, the reason why in relationships we grow is because relationships provide both friction and momentum. Friction and momentum. Friction that rubs away that which is protruding and sinful. It just rubs away over a period of time in a friendship, in an accountability group, and then in a marriage. If we're speaking truth and love to one another, then we are iron sharpening iron. And that friction is doing its work of molding, of smoothing, of showing, exposing. But it's also providing momentum. Have you ever noticed with people that you're close with that you can be away from them for a period of time and when you get to them, you just kind of pick right up and move right on. The three, I've got three guys we've been meeting in an accountability group for 40, 41 years now. And when we get together, there's very little preliminary. We just jump right in. We know each other. And we just jump right in, start throwing the flag, blowing the whistle. We do everything. I mean, we can just get right to it. No, no preliminaries at all. Well, the same thing's true in your marriage. Now, men, I am not giving you carte blanche to act obnoxiously in the marriage. Please do not take that as a statement that way. Always come into the life of your wife with respect and consideration. But we're past courting. We're past dating. <laughs> we're past engagement. And when I come home, we can pick up right here. Now, I better ask a few preliminary questions because given my inadequacies, there are things that probably happen that are going over my head and I need her to put them in front of my face. But overall, your relationship just picks up as you leave in the morning, as you go your way and as you come back together. Those things just pick right up. Well, when that is absent in a state of singleness, please listen to me. It is, I believe, the call of the family of God. Not to try to replicate a marital relationship with someone in extended singleness. But to create the best possible fellowship for their blessing and yours as possible within the bounds of propriety in Christ's church. 
That's why I'm so glad uh, just seeing Benny up here and knowing what they're working on in terms of congregational communities and how communities can be joined with uh, those who are in temporary or extended periods of singleness together and how the Lord begins to pull all of that together. Those relational blessings as a means of grace, if one has not access to the marital blessing of the means of grace then we ought to provide the opportunities for fellowship to the best of our ability. Again, not trying to replicate a marriage. Again, not trying, not going beyond the bounds of propriety, but to create those things that are, that will provide spiritual fathers for those in extended singleness, spiritual mothers for those in extended singleness, spiritual uncles and aunts, and all of those things, brothers and sisters, sibling relationships in Christ, that those are crucial because of the disadvantage of the absence of the blessings of the marital relationship. Secondly, another disadvantage is the appropriate godly outlet for the sexual passions that are God-given to bless your spouse. The sexual passions, unless you have the gift of celibacy, are still there. And Satan is going to try to, is going to try to entrap someone in the, uh, in the unbiblical, immoral use of it. And boy, look at the panoply that's here in our culture. Um, transsexuality, pansexuality, monosexuality, bisexuality, homosexuality, promiscuous heterosexuality. A culture that is saying dark, that dark is light and light is dark. We need to surround one another and pray for one another because of how the evil one might use those moments of extended singleness as a disadvantage to trap someone into sexual sins and all of the consequences that come with it. And we need to bring the redemptive power of the gospel to bear whenever there is those who have faltered. And we bathe one another with the love of Christ and washing with the washing of, of the of the of the blood of the lamb and the washing of the water of the word. Thirdly, another disadvantage is just as with self-denial, my extended singleness can become the opportunity for for um, for uh, for expanded growth and ministry. If I don't have self-denial, then instead of expanded growth and ministry could become self-pity because of self-absorption. And instead of seeing singleness as a stewardship, it's seen as a trap. And instead of seeing it as a stewardship, it is seen as a trap which quickly could make marriage no longer a blessed institution to pray for and prepare for, but an idol to sacrifice anything to obtain. That's what that lady was telling me she refused to do. She wanted to be, she prepared to be, she prayed to be, but she would not make it an idol to be obtained at all costs. 
but she knew the blessings of stewardship that come with self-denial. That's why Paul says, if we have not that ability, then let us marry, and then they have not sinned. Well, just a couple of takeaways now. I'm trying to be timely for us tonight as we go into this week of um, gathering together. Uh, Let me just give you a couple of uh, takeaways. Here's the first one. Embrace singleness as a stewardship. Here are you talking about a temporary or extended? Both. Embrace it as a stewardship. As a stewardship with contentment in Christ. Avoid, avoid spiritualizing it whereby marriage is seen as a trap in order to feel better about one's status of singleness. And avoid marriage being idolatrous. Embrace the moments of singleness as a stewardship with confidence that God is doing something in your life. May I ask you to go to one other passage of Scripture with me? And that's the book of Ruth. Would you go there? I would love, actually, to take the book of Ruth, not only for its Christological focus in the coming of Christ, but also I would love to take um, Ruth and just to develop the book of Ruth for you and for me in terms of a study in this matter, uh, or at least an illustration of the theology of singleness. You know that um, uh, Naomi and her husband go with her sons to Moab because of the famine. They leave Bethlehem and Ephraim. And they go there, and, um, and then their sons marry outside the covenant. And they marry a woman named Orpah and a woman named Ruth. Then, and then Naomi's husband dies and the two sons die. And then they hear that there's food back in Bethlehem and the famine is over. So they turn to go. Now look at verse 9 of chapter 1. I'm sorry, not 9, verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt kindly with, with the dead, that is her father, her husband and her, and her sons, their husbands, and as you have dealt kindly with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. In other words, go home and get married. Go home and get married. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and they wept and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? 
Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Now, I understand this has a great redemptive framework for the Christological purposes. But I want you to see something else that's here in the human drama and the human narrative. They've lost their husbands. They're young women in a state of singleness. And to go with Ruth would be an extension, likely, of that singleness. Ruth cannot provide any other sons to take the place of her sons as the, as the law of Moses would have allowed. And they're coming back as foreigners. More than that, Moabites. There was nothing worse than Moabites and Ammonites. And they're coming back to the city of David, the king. That, that's, that, that was a, that was a key city that eventually David, through this very line, would be born. This was a very important city, not a large city, but an important city that had been set up in the tribe of Judah, which carried the scepter. And so, when you go back there, there's not much hope except extended singleness. And what does Orpah do? She kisses, she goes with her initially, but upon the second plea, turns and goes back. And there is no negative said about her. There was nothing wrong with that. Let her go back and seek marriage in her mother's house. But Ruth obviously has had a converting experience with the Lord of glory. And what she decides is keeping covenant was more important than turning back for the, for the understandable desire to be married. And she said, your people are my people. Your God is my God. Nothing, I'm dead to myself. Nothing but death will separate me from this covenant relationship. This is the passage that my wife and I chose when we got married. Not because Ruth gets married, but because of her covenant faithfulness to the Lord. And he was enough. And she was going to endure and embrace this stewardship. And then she goes back. Well, the Lord had other ideas. The Lord had other ideas, and those other ideas, when she gets back... Naomi sends her into the fields of her kinsman, Boaz, who happens to be single. 
That's what my mother was doing regularly, sending me into other fields where there were single women on a regular basis. Some of you know, when I met Cindy, I said to my mother, how come you haven't introduced me to her? She said, well, son, I think that she's a little bit out of your league. I remember that well. In other words, that's one field too far for you, son. But God was gracious. And so here is this glorious and wonderful moment where she is not going to make she understands the validity of the marriage out of her singleness, but she's willing to face the extension of singleness because of a covenant faithfulness to her covenant-keeping God that she has now come to embrace. And therefore, he was enough, and she would be a steward. Well, she goes to the fields of Boaz, and what does Boaz do? Boaz takes notice of her, and he asks, Who is that woman? And they tell her. And then he begins to leave grain for her. And he tells them, leave a little extra grain for her. And when they finished, he had her come over and gave her food and drink. And then when she went back, he gave her some extra grain and some gleanings. And she gets back and she tells Naomi. <laughs> she tells Naomi what Boaz has been doing. And, and, and Naomi says, get dressed and put your perfume on and go back to that field. You've got to read this thing and see what's happening. And she goes back. And as you know, she comes to him in the, in the evening when all the workers are sleeping. And she, there's nothing illicit, nothing immoral that takes place. She's just there. And when he awakes, he sees her. Now, she is initiating. But she's not initiating without him having initiated. And both are initiating. There is a lot of reciprocity in this text. And I try to communicate that to men to be men and pursue relationships. First in fellowship, but then as the God would lead in courtship, and then with commitment if the Lord leads there. Be men. But also women. Ruth can be your example. There is appropriate presentation of oneself, not soliciting, but just there walking in faithfulness, doing her duty to provide for her mother-in-law in the field that God had appointed, the field of the, of the kinsman redeemer. And so there, he, he having initiated, she initiates and then Naomi's famous words, <laughs> he will not rest until he has solved this. It's amazing what mothers and mother-in-laws do know. And so, and that is exactly what happens. And therefore, this woman becomes part of the genealogy of our Savior. So that brings me to my second one. And that is walk carefully in temporary or extended singleness. Take advantage of the advantages of this moment in your life and walk carefully that you are not entrapped in the disadvantages. Develop relationships. I believe, as I said a while ago, that we as a congregation ought to have in our communities and in our relationships all kinds of initiatives and structures whereby we are cross-pollinating appropriately and with propriety in order to provide those levels of fellowship. 
But I also believe that within among those who are in temporary or extended singleness, there ought to be a fellowship. Don't let the fears of the world cause you to cower from establishing friendships with one another. Those friendships need to be established. You are in seasons of life where you have much in common with each other. Well, we don't want to be, uh, we don't want people to be thinking this or that or the other. Turn what people think over to Jesus. Keep your heart pure. And I believe there ought to be very clearly, I'll just go, I'm, I'm not prescribing something, but my goodness, after a Sunday evening worship, why in the world would there not be a fellowship time together? I mean, even go to a Mexican restaurant if that's necessary. That, that's how much I'm committed to this. <laughs> I, I probably shouldn't have said that. But... <laughs> But establish fellowship times together. And then if God draws hearts together, then you move into courtship. And then you move into more committed relationships. But have those times together, male and female. Every time I walk into a room, I feel like I'm in an orthodox synagogue with the men on one side and the women on the other. Just cross-pollinate in friendship and fellowship. I, I want to say more, but I know I'll get in trouble, so I'm not going to say any more. Hopefully you got the point. Number three, continued or extended singleness is a time to cultivate the future of your life in Christ by preparing. If you're not given the gift of celibacy, I believe you're always anticipating the marriage that God may bring, even while you're content in the stewardship of the moment that God has called you to. It's a time of preparation. It's a time of prayer. It's a time of purpose in your life. The advantages are many. Take advantage of them. The disadvantages can be destructive, so avoid them. Walk carefully with the Lord. Those of us who enjoy marital status in life, older people like myself, we can be, you know, we can be spiritual grandparents and spiritual parents and older brothers and um, in the Lord to our friends and fellow members of the body of Christ who are in temporary or extended singleness in those categories of life. So, but the key is the stewardship with contentment, even in the anticipation with preparation and the refusal to make marriage an, an idol to obtain at all costs. Because when that happens, there will be costs that you don't want to pay. So what you want to do is embrace that and how the Lord has called and gifted you to accomplish it. Well, there's much more, I think, that can be said and should be said. And there are many of you that can say it much better than me. And there are many of you that can share that with each other. I have watched some older couples in our church that have embraced the opportunity for ministry to those who are 
in temporary singleness or those in which their singleness has extended into life. And as I've watched those couples do that, then I thank the Lord and pray that their tribe increases. Not that they come in with all the answers. They just come in to fellowship and guide and mentor and shepherd. And then to create ways that we can all cross-pollinate in fellowship and in ministry opportunities together. Can I give you another one? We try to do every ministry through teams. I think every team not only has ordained leadership, but has lay people, male, female, older, younger, single, married. I believe that matrix profile brings nothing but strength to such leadership teams and provides another means of growth together in the Lord so that we are one body, one people. Yes, we will give thoughtful ministry to people in their seasons of life, married, single, extended single, younger children, older children. Yes, we will do that, but not at the expense of our unity. Our diversity is always pointing to our unity together in Christ. So by God's grace, we'll be able to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice and spur one another on to love and to good deeds. Well, what does a Christian man look like in singleness? He's strong and courageous. He doesn't cower from the stewardship. He's sensitive and compassionate to his brothers and his sisters. He is sensitive and compassionate and strong and courageous. And what of Christian biblical femininity? There is the walk with confidence and contentment in Christ. And that desire to have all of the blessings that Christ has when he has them. That we might walk together in and for the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the time we've been able to be together in your word. Thank you for the joy and privilege to give you praise this Lord's Day. Father, as we go into Holy Week, please bless these, your people. May they be blessed in their growth as disciples, in their worship as the redeemed, and in their outreach as evangelists. And then, Father, for my dear brothers and sisters who are in the transition of singleness or some extension of singleness, give them eyes fixed on Jesus, the embracing of the stewardship, even as they walk thoughtfully, taking advantage of this time of their life and the stewardship that you've given to them, and walking carefully, not to be entrapped by the onslaughts and the, and the snares of the evil one. We'll give you praise as we hold one another up in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader. Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.